Hi, everyone. We have the best today. This is a book by Mark Williams and Tim Wigmore, How Elite Athletes Are Made. So welcome. What I really needed was to recreate myself, which means to bring something new into the world that has never existed before. How Elite Athletes Are Made, and I have the co-authors on online today, uh, Mark Williams and Tim Wigmore, to talk about the best and how these elite athletes are shaped. I'm incredibly interested in this topic. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you, Terrence. Terrence, thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, where are you guys? Hi, Tim. Are you both in the UK right now? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in London at the moment. Oh, lovely. lovely. And I'm uh, further north, just outside of Liverpool. Oh, awesome. Well, can you take a couple seconds just to talk to, about how you guys connected on this book and how the best came to be and how you've uh, kind of collided? I know, Mark, you're a, a, a sports scientist, and Tim, you've written uh, uh, books. You're both authors. Uh, how did you connect on this book? Yeah, Tim and I have very different backgrounds, I guess, as you correctly pointed out. I'm a professor in sports science or kinesiology at the University of Utah, and uh, I guess been an academic for probably 30 odd years now. Uh, Tim is a journalist who works for the Daily Telegraph. And um, we were introduced by a fellow author and journalist, a guy called Matthew Saeed, who's written um, a couple of or several well-known books in the UK, Bounce, Rebel Ideas. So um, I'd uh, help Matthew in terms of producing uh, some of his books and then expressed my interest in contributing to a popular science book at some point. So then Matthew put me in touch with Tim. And uh, Matthew had met, met and interrupted with Tim as well for, for a few years, I think. Oh, fantastic. So tell us about the best, uh, you know, studying these elite athletes and writing about them, how you guys collided on, on some of the big ideas. I have a lot of questions about the book, but what's the big idea uh, of the book and, and how could non-elite athletes benefit from this work? So uh, the, the process was, was, was quite interesting to do because, yeah, obviously I had different backgrounds, as, as, as Mark said. So basically Mark kind of assembled these reams of science notes and then my job would be to try and translate it if translate them if you like for a kind of normal normal lay audience and we did loads of really kind of exciting interviews um as, as part of that we you know for an american audience we talked to people like elena del don pete sampras joey votto uh steph curry steve kerr so um it was really interesting to sort of talk to them and and actually kind of p almost put the research to them and see how it relates to their own, own journeys. So that was, that was a really cool part of the project. And in terms of the, the book, I guess in some ways it's like a kind of, like a maybe like, like outliers for, for sport. Mm. And it's, it's kind of deconstructing how you, you get to the top. Obviously everyone has a, a different journey and it's, you know, that's yeah, a, a unique story, but there's also these common threads we see it again and again and again. And, you know, just to give one um, very simple one in, in chapter one, we talk about how younger siblings have a, a big advantage in sport. And if you, you know, younger siblings have much more chance of becoming elite athletes. And even when uh, two siblings become professionals, we tend to see the younger ones being better. So um, 
when Venus and Serena Williams were, were kids, uh, their father, Richard, he always said, if people actually thought Venus was the better one. He always said Serena will go on to, to be the best. And obviously Venus has had a fantastic, wonderful career, but Serena has gone on to be better than her. So yeah, we see this again and again, these stories um, actually playing out and the kind of the science and real life kind of, we see that how they, they, uh, they interact and kind of they um, marry up with each other, I guess. I get. I see the intersection. Uh, you know, you mentioned nurturing nature and nurture. Uh, how you know almost the art and the science collide to create this greatness. Because uh, the odds, I remember reading, the odds of becoming a professional are, are very low. I mean, one in I think it's one in six thousand for football, and one in ten, no, one in twelve or thirteen thousand for basketball. Uh, and you, you guys delve into. I think you delve a, a lot into it very interestingly to the genetics and the, and the nature, but also dynamics like, um, you know, where you're from. So talk a little bit about that and, uh, and we can, you know, go in. I'm very interested to hear about, uh, Deladonna and her, and her free throw sure. shooting. Uh, she's fascinating, but, uh, talk about that. for I a mean, second. I guess that the book is really split into three parts. I mean, in the first part, we explore some of the impact of environmental influences on the development of expertise. So as Tim just suggested, there are topics like um, where you're born, when you're born, the role of family, the role of siblings, mm -hmm. uh, the role of coaches, mentors, how talent is identified at early stages and the importance of street sport. And then the kind of middle part of the book drifts into talking about some of the adaptations that occur in elite athletes as a result of prolonged engagement in sport. Adaptations like the development of game intelligence and obviously the development of some of the psychological characteristics that underpin greatness. And then the final section really looks at it more from a coaching or a talent development perspective, looking at how uh, coaches coupled with cutting edge science can all make a significant contribution in regards to the development of elite athletes. Mm. Well, let's start from when you know when they're born. I mean, I was the youngest of six. My my dad and uh, both my brothers played professional baseball, uh, and, and uh, you know my brother brother Tim and I both went to school on scholarships, which was interesting. When you talk about playing sports and 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 when you're the youngest, you're always playing kids that are four, five, six years older than you. I, I mean, I lived that my whole life. But talk about the. I mean, I think it's really interesting the town and the family part of it. Yeah, so uh, I mean, it, you, you hit the nail on the head, and obviously, it, it didn't work out in in your case. But in um, right. in most cases, as you said, it, if you're younger, basically, you play up with older siblings, and if you're a five year old playing with a seven year old, you can't out, you probably can't outrun them. Right, you you can't out, out muscle them. So the only way to keep up, actually, is with sort of skill and subtlety and stuff. And then you you basically you reach a level when you when you're fully mature. Um, where physically you're not disadvantaged anymore. And you've actually, because of being the underdog, they call it the underdog effect. So because of being the underdog, you've built these advantages in other ways. And then when you can marry those with, with kind of being physically the same or even stronger than your opponent, suddenly you, you've got a big advantage. And But actually we can kind of create that underdog effect in different ways. I think that's a really important kind of lesson from the book. So we, we talked with Elena Del Don, who, as you said, is the best free throw shooter of all time, one of the best basketball players of all time. And she, you know, she was very, she was born September 5th, so she's old for her, her school year. She was always incredibly tall for her, her age. So she, you know, basically could bully 
her, could bully teammates, could bully opponents on, on the court from a young age, which is actually not great for your development because you reach a point when suddenly you're playing with, with players who are the same height as you and you haven't developed there's, there's other skills. So actually when she was 11, she was playing with kids five years older than her. She also played a lot with, with boys growing up as well. So that kind of forced her to, ve- to develop those other skills and also the kind of mental attributes, the resilience, the kind of learning from failure. Because if, I think if as a kid, if you win all the time, that's actually not good for your development. You, you le- often learn more from, from failure and you learn from kind of being thrown into new situations and having new new variables. Um, so that that's a really important les- lesson from the book. And to go back to to what you said about about towns mm. is, is this amazing statistic, which is that if you're from a, a US town of between fifty and hundred thousand, you have fifteen times more chance of becoming a pro athlete. Fifteen times oh um, than if you're from a, an area more than hundred thousand or less than fifty thousand. That's an, that's an insane advantage mm. and. What that kind of what that relates to really is those those are kind of mid-sized towns and they're they're a sweet spot really, which is they have they have good enough facilities, good enough competition, but they also they don't suffer from the disadvantages of size, which is that you kind of get you kind of get lost. So, you know, in bigger cities, kids drop out more frequently from sports, they kind of get lost from the system, plus they have longer travel time and also have less informal play. So parents need to be a bit more relaxed. It's a bit easier for kids to have informal play when they're in these smaller areas. And informal play is is such a big part of how you develop skills. So, you know, we talked we talked to um the, the MBA and, and they and they said how kids who've played more, you know, street street basketball, that gives them more adaptability and kind of the ability to think for themselves on the spot. And that's <coughs> such a such a crucial a crucial factor. So Certainly one of the big lessons is although, yes, you can gain a lot from formal training and that and that is important. But if you if you lose the informal play, you lose a bit of a bit of magic, really. And actually we see again and again, um, informal play is so important in athletes' ultimate journey. And there's there was a, a study um of Premier League academies um in, in football, in the English Premier League, and they basically showed of players who were released age 16 and players who went on to get contracts there was no difference in the amount of formal training they'd done but the difference was the kids who got contract had done more informal play more street sport mm. but that we see that again and again through, throughout sport that the value of that informal play because it gives you the ability to think for yourself and to problem solve because it's not everything that can be solved by a coach telling you what to do ultimately to become a top athlete it's about adapting and and so the more informal play you can do that's so so important I can't. I can't believe fifteen x fifteen times more likely in a little town. I came from a little town, and the reason I didn't go pro was not my ability in, or training. It was my fault. I didn't behave well in college. <laughs> it, it sounds like your uh, your family benefited from the fifteen x times. Though. Oh, oh yeah, the whole town. I mean, the little town we come from in uh, the western part of Massachusetts is a baseball factory. That's very interesting. Um, and the little towns are true, like a little town. The, the you know you got the informal play, which Frankly, we're not we're seeing less of, unfortunately, because of uh, the other things drawing these kids' attention. But um, are the towns these towns supporting the athletes and giving the athletes support and feedback and infrastructure? Yeah, look, so, yeah, I think that that's a big part of it as well. So there's been studies um, of dropout rates in, in U.S. and Canadian sports, and they find that kids drop out more frequently when they're from bigger towns. So mm-hmm. they seem to get discouraged, and I think it's a little bit because there's so many young kids that 
kids get a little bit lost. And also maybe in, in small towns, there's more of a, there's a little bit more of a kind of, more of, com- of a communal atmosphere really. And therefore the coaches are kind of looking at them more as individuals and thinking how they develop in the long term. You know, what what's not good for anybody is if you have a kind of, under 11, under 12 coach who just wants to win the next game. That's all he cares about. Mm. And that's not going to be do those young athletes any good. That's when he's going to pick. He's going to pick the, the biggest and strongest kids. He's not and he's going to leave behind maybe kids who are actually more skillful but are less physically developed. And that's that's kind of a road to nowhere. And I think those smaller towns have that big advantage. There's more of a sense of community spirit, more of a sense of the athlete's journey. Um, and also, I mean, <laughs> the if you look at parents, parents in smaller towns, they tend to be more relaxed about their kids playing outside and playing informally. And that gives them the kind of, you know, gives them more hours because they're exposed to that informal play. What about, um, you talk about the talent, you know, the, the actually the DNA, so to speak, like the genetics. And I like how you, you guys kind of combine science and, uh, nurturing, naturing, nurture and nature. Like you get, you have what you have, and you can only run as fast as your body will permit, and 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 be as quick. Uh, but uh, what about that, that LeBron James or that that cis person? I think you talked about Pele too a little bit, which is an interesting. But talk talk about uh, talent. You know, one you know the X factor. I think you called it in the book. Yeah, I think uh, I think the importance of. Well, firstly, I guess becoming an expert is probably some combination of nature and nurture, I guess, and mm-hmm. that debate will rumble on and there'll never be a clear solution to it. But um, the book probably focuses more so on some of the environmental conditions uh, and issues like practice and coaching mm-hmm. that help facilitate the development of expertise, that is making the best of the genes that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that regard, probably the strong focus throughout the book is around skill development uh, rather than necessarily focus on physical and physiological aspects. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly those factors are important. It's um, certainly important in some sports like basketball, for instance, where it mm-hmm. certainly helps to be, uh, you know, well above six foot. Um, but essentially the, the role of genetics in skill development is relatively unknown so far. And uh, and even in terms of the way that different athletes respond to different types of practice, we really don't know what the genetic influence are on that. And I think that's maybe a positive strand throughout the book, really, because the book is maybe about optimizing talent mm-hmm. and discovering some of the, you know, some of the factors that have a huge impact on the development of elite athletes along that path to excellence. Uh, so I think that the book is a message of hope as much as anything in that I think we can all improve whatever level uh, we aspire to achieve. You in, offer some good advice. Professional for, domains. I'm sorry about that. But you offer it's some okay. great advice about uh, not necessarily specializing out of the gate. Just kind of let them wander around and figure out where their, where their gifts may be because, you know, as their body develops and their, and their skills evolve. Uh, I think that's kind of an interesting point. Visit on that for a sec. Yeah, that is, uh, I mean, uh, in that chapter, what we do is, is we describe some of the different types of pathways to excellence. Mm-hmm. And, and clearly some athletes specialize very early into the sport. 
some people have a very diverse sporting background, specialised late, and others have maybe a combined pathway, what we call early engagement, mm. in that whilst they might uh, begin to participate in their one true love of sport very early on, for instance, they still participate in a wide variety of sport. And to some degree, maybe the pathway that's most conducive really depends on the sport. I mean, in some sports like soccer, for instance, you know, kids start playing at four or five years of age. Uh, they're often in some formal ac training academy by age six or seven, mm -hmm. and they've accumulated in excess of 10,000 hours of practice by the time they get to 15 or 16 often. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but can, clearly there are other sports where specialization into that sport occurs much later. So whereas there are some potential disadvantages with early specialization around burnout and overuse injuries, mm -hmm. um, there are also some potential problems with not engaging early enough in a sport, particularly if that sport is super popular culturally and people informally engage in the sport at a very early age. So it may, in essence, leave you with a practice deficit, which may be hard to make up later in development. Yeah, and in, in the USA, when we played baseball, uh, in the northeastern states, it's snowing half the year, so you can't play at all. We play in the gym. When we played at the University of Massachusetts, we'd be playing inside, and we'd, we'd fly to Florida every year early in the spring. It was still snowing in New England, and when we landed here in Florida, uh, the team that we had play, we'd be playing for the first time, the first time we saw a live baseball coming at 90-plus miles per hour, uh, the team had already played 20 games and has played all year. So it's an interesting, uh, weather plays an interesting mm -hmm. role in, in the States for that, that sport, especially. Um, mm. Well, I think the U.S. generally has a stronger multi-sport culture than maybe Europe and South America, mm -hmm. where, where soccer, by and large, is such a dominant part of, of the culture. Um, but actually, even in seasonal sports, we we've have some data from U.S. skiers and um uh, they, you know, most skiers are on the slopes at two and three years of age and they're mm. involved in systematic training programs at six and seven. And then by the age of 18, they've often accumulated around 8,000 hours of practice in the sport. Now, skiing, however, is an early engagement sport and so not an early specialization sport. So what you find with these skiers is that they do partake in a lot of other sports, uh, often half a dozen other sports, and they may accumulate maybe another six to 8,000 hours in other sports as well. So, um, yeah, but clearly skiing is another one of those sports which is very restricted. So you talk about practice sports. in time. Uh, 10,000 hours, of course, was Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, you know, how long it took to be an expert. Uh, I mean, with the lack of informal play now in the States, I think some kids will never get there. I, I mean, what we used to play all, the only option for us was baseball, you know, or basketball mm. or football in the yard. American football, um, but we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of kids are are spending a lot of time doing other things, and then the other issue here is also uh, that some kids will play a lot of sports. They'll play three sports. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll play each yeah. season has a sport, so they'll, they'll kind of bounce around a little bit. Uh, what's the mm -hmm. role? This is kind of cool. I want to get into coaching because um, coaching and psychology kind of I think kind of play a role. What's the role of psychology in in elite athletes? So I think we, we look at this in, in the book and 
well, obviously we, we, we envy elite athletes a lot. A lot of us do, you know, there are our heroes, but, you know, being an elite athlete is, is also really, really tough. And one of the reasons it's tough, you know, elite athletes more like to be, uh, per, more like to be per- perfectionists, um, have a kind of often have a, yeah, uh, they have these perfectionist, uh, traits. They're more like to actually suffer from depression as well. Um, but they, they clearly have something that's, that's sort of driving them on this this urge to be better and better and better, mm. and to keep on pushing themselves. Um, so that the, the, you know these psychological traits are really really important in who goes on to become the best. You know we we see elite athletes tend to have have high self confidence in in general, um, and and obviously they, they score very highly on you know on grit and de- determination um, because you obviously need to do hell of a lot to to reach the top and actually to have a long career as well you know to have a 15 year career as a lot of elite athletes do nowadays you have to be so so dedicated and committed to, to your art really you guys said- i think the whilst it's important to highlight the importance of these psychological characteristics like grit resilience mental toughness motivation uh it's it's still unclear in terms of to what extent these skills are developed through prolonged engagement in the sport as opposed to they being also genetic attributes to them. And in fact, the evidence probably is more favorable in terms of the fact that these are skills that can be developed through appropriate mentoring, support, and exposure to the right type of practice environments. What was the biggest surprise in your research? Other than the town, it's fifteen times, fifteen times more likely to be professional. A small town that surprised me a lot. What other big surprises were there? I mean, for me, a huge one we haven't talked about is the is the big advantage of left handers in sport. So you've got six times more chance of being a, a hitter in Major League Baseball if you bat left-handed. It doesn't mean you you are actually left-handed, but it means you you kind of flip your hands. So your your right hand is is on top effectively. Mm-hmm. So every kid, I mean that's the most simple thing of all, you know, every every kid should should be batting with their their opposite hand, if you like. That gives that's a huge advantage in terms of swing. Plus as a lefty, you're only about a third uh, 30% of uh hitters um bat left handed so you have an advantage that with pitchers that they're not as used to to actually facing um, to, to pitching to left-handers. So we talk with, with Joey Votto, who's obviously very successful left-hander. Any any he, he kind of he's quite honest and endearing. He says he sees right-handers, right-handed batters who are more talented than him, and he thinks they're better than him. But he his stats are way way better than. And he just he actually thinks it's because the pitches, the quality of the pitches he gets are just not quite as good because pitches are not as familiar. Whereas obviously as a left-hander, you're used to facing right-handers the whole time. Um, yeah. So that that's a really really big. It's a massive advantage. We thought it might be a little one, but six times it's it's a really big thing. So again, that's you know that's a fundamental thing that actually all kids should really be doing. This is a really strong reason that they, they you know to avoid doing that. But yeah, but hitting with your opposite hand, it's, it's actually seven times in cricket. So which is obviously a similar sport to, to baseball, similar structure, and it's so it's a similar advantage there. So that that suggests it's a, it's a really big and real thing. Um, so that that would be right up there for me. And I think also the kind of how informal play seems to predict who goes on to being elite more than formal hours of training found that that very interesting and that that says a lot actually about the limits of, of formal coaching mm. yeah all well and yeah important up to a, a degree absolutely but if you 
kind of if you take away kids' ability to think for themselves and solve problems, that's that's a real a real problem. And actually, obviously, the art of good coaching is to combine the best of kind of giving expertise, but also encouraging them to think for themselves. And we did it. We we talked with Judy Murray, who of course uh, her sons Jamie and Andy, more more famously, both become very successful professional tennis players. And she talks. Mm. She was a tennis coach herself, a former pro for a bit, and her style as a coach was always to ask questions. It wasn't to say, you know, your second serve was rubbish a day. It was a, you know, you lost today. Where do you think you went wrong? What what could you have done better? What was your game plan there? So very much encouraging them to take ownership for themselves. We've talked with, with Jamie as well about that. Encouraging them to think for themselves and think about what they were doing. So that the point is, you cannot be out there in a match. Suddenly you're break point down in, a, in the final set and your, your mum or dad is not there to tell you what to do. You know, you need to have built that ability yourself to, to, to problem solve. And obviously a part of that is being in a lot of scenarios, but I think more and more, there's always going to be scenarios that you haven't prepared for, but actually the ability to react in a crisis and adapt, those skills are transferable really. So mm. if you can have, have an, kind of informal play and the coaching that this kind of tunes your mind in the right way, that can ensure, you know, you keep those traits when you need them the most. So if you're the youngest sibling and you're a lefty, and you're born in a small town. You're in pretty good shape, right? Yeah, the beers are on you, I think. <laughs> That's, it's so interesting. It, Mark, Is because this is speaking to the movement, is the lefty have a physical advantage in the way they move? Or is it scarcity, you know, just the novelty of seeing something it, different? It is. It's, it, it is purely uh, scarcity or, or perceptual frequency effects. Interesting. Because, in essence, they've, they've demonstrated the same effect if you mirror reverse the image of a right-handed player, uh, thus presenting that player as a left-handed player. And uh, it's still harder to anticipate that player when presented as a left-hander compared to a right-hander. Yeah, we, so I was a catcher, um, so I caught those lefties. Uh, so I guess what, what Mark is saying, actually, is that if everyone took our advice and all right-handers, they batted as lefties, yeah. they would lose that advantage. But as long as most people are doing it the wrong way, you'll get a a big advantage from switching hands. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The other the other interesting observation in the book, I mean, there wasn't much that surprised me, I guess, because I've been doing research in the area for 30 odd years. But the other finding that comes out quite often, I guess, is the relative age effect in that mm -hmm. the tendency for um, kids to have a much higher chance of being selected for an elite training program if they're born in the first three months of the selection year. And what it highlights, of course, is the tendency of, of coaches and scouts to select kids that are bigger and stronger in their age group. Uh, so your chances of making an elite athlete are a lot less. Uh, well, uh, let me rephrase that. There's a slight paradox to it, actually. Your chances of being selected for an elite training program are much less if you're born in the final three months of the selection year. But the paradox is that your chances of becoming a super athlete are actually much higher if you're born in the last three months of the year. Uh, because I guess the argument would be is that those born later in the year do not have the advantages of physical size early in development and have to focus on developing other skills, which after the physical size disadvantage dissipates post-puberty, then they're able to benefit from superior, for instance, technical and tactical skill. 
So it's actually the, the sibling effect effectively in an, an, another context. Mm. The sibling effect sort of, it shows, the re- it highlights the relative age effect and the underdog effect. Um, and it's a kind of a good way of thinking about a lot, a lot of these, these themes actually we found. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a September baby too. So I, I knew that, you know, the, the selection year in, in a, lot of, a lot of schools, right? That starts, that starts your year in the fall yes. in, in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, which I'm yeah. sure, I think it's that way pretty much everywhere. Yeah. So, for instance, in the Premier League, your chances of being uh, selected for training academy are probably 50% of players come for that first three months and only about 10% of players come from the final three months in the selection year. So was there a correlation between size and ability and the the likelihood of excellence? Like that, I mean, is it it half practice and coaching and psychology and half physical ability but, i mean i think i think one of the messages from the book is nature and nurture is so intertwined from mm. such an early age it's, it's it is very difficult to put, put put a number on it and to say i mean half and half seems like a reasonable general mm. thing you know i i don't think we me or mark would say that anyone can become an elite athlete but but certainly you know anyone can become better than they, than, than they are right. and you know as certainly as as, as kids, there are so many things that you, you can do. Um, you know, the, the, we talk about that that will make it should help to improve improve you at sport. Mm. Well, there's so much. Uh, there's so much in doing and and gaining uh, the you know just being around that 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 strive for excellence. Even if you fall short, you become a more a more uh, refined human being. You become I mean, your ability to to thrive is probably much better. Uh, that'd be an interesting book. Uh, a secondary book is how they do after. I don't know whether you've done that research yet. Um, after excellence. I mean, there is there is certainly a section in the book that looks at uh, some of the mental health issues that athletes have a tendency to suffer with post-retirement. Uh, you know, coming back from the high of being an elite athlete and making that adaptation to somewhat normal life uh, does present its problems for elite athletes the same as it does across society as a whole but but I think you're perfectly right in your preceding statement in the sense that I guess sport is a great vehicle to develop life skills and mm-hmm. teamwork communication uh, and of course life is, is full of ups and downs in much the same way as sport is full of ups and downs so being resilient having the right kind of levels of motivation and drive to continue to work and solve problems is um, integral to success in life as it is in pretty much any professional domain. Mm. Yeah, exactly. What, so, what advice would you give parents that are having babies and and they, and they aspire to have their children in 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 a? I mean, is, is it like literally come down to potentially moving? You know, if you want a, more, a, a better chance, move to a smaller smaller town. I mean that that would improve their chances. I mean, I think I think the biggest takeaway would be make sure your your kid, if if they are talented and and everything in sport, mm-hmm. is being challenged enough. You know, there's no point in them being you know the under eight kid who's who's scoring up the whole time. I mean, that's that'll make them feel good in short term, but it's actually not going. It's actually not good for their character development either because they're not going to you know be used to, they'll be used to winning all the time, and life is not as simple as that. So you know, my advice, mm-hmm. I guess, would be. Yeah, informal play so crucial to develop that problem solving, but also you know 
simple to make to, to make them play in games where they won't be the best all the time, and that will actually that will help 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 their development. And obviously, if they're uh, if they're into baseball, make sure they they bat left handed. Oh god! You know, we just did a we just did <laughs> yeah. a book called Flow. I don't know if you guys read the the book Flow by Mihal Csikszentmihalyi. He talks about how when when the challenge is too low and the uh, you know to the task the, the boredom sets in, and when the challenge is too high, uh, anxiety sees. So you almost got to get that sweet spot where the challenge is enough that keeps the participant engaged. Uh, yeah, it's something that has also been referred to as the literature's desirable difficulties. Uh, and uh, the essence is, of course, is you have to be able to stress the system um, mm. to be able to, to constrain the system to adapt and modify. So part of that, of course, is the capacity to deal with so-called challenge points, or some might in lay terms describe them as speed bumps in the road. And... Uh, and of course, one of the things that helps in terms of overcoming those is some of these psychological characteristics like grit, resilience, and mental toughness. Um, so I, I, and again, there's some genetic component to those, but they're often shaped by the environment that we um, uh, were presented with. Well, we can't uh, predict grit. We still have never been able to do. There's no test that predicts grit yet that I'm aware of. Um, oh well, there is a measure of grit. There is an inventory to measure grit. Oh, there is. But I think I think in sporting terms, I think you know those kids who are used to to not being the best. That that does it forces you to develop that tenacity and, and grit more than you know being able to put everyone else on, on the court does. Mm. So I think in terms of developing those psychological traits, again, it's yeah. If you can encourage your children to to, to play up. We involved with older kids and have those different challenges. That's a really, really good thing to do. That's fantastic. I have an advanced copy of this book from your publisher. When is it going to be coming out uh, for sale? So it's out on December first in in the US, and obviously you can you can you can uh, buy it on pre order uh, whenever. Uh, and how do people learn more about the book? You guys have uh, other than Amazon. I'm sure it'll be on there. Yeah, it's it's with Amazon. There's yes. Yeah, with Barnes Noble and yeah, okay, I guess see. any good bookshops in uh, in America in your local town in your awesome. mid-sized town. Awesome, the best. How the elite athletes are made by Mark Williams and Tim Wigmore. We really appreciate your time today and uh, look forward to hearing more about your journey. Thanks, Terence. Really enjoyed Thanks that. Thanks for having us on, Terence. Thank you. Thank you.